You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. David Frum is a senior editor at The Atlantic and a regular contributor on MSNBC. From 2001 to 2002, he served as a speechwriter and special assistant to George W. Bush, President of the United States. He's the author of nine books, including How We Got Here, The 70s, The Decade That Brought You Modern Life, For Better or Worse, Comeback, Conservatism That Can Win Again, why Romney Lost and What the GOP Can Do About It, and the New York Times bestseller, The Right Man, an inside account of the Bush White House. His new book is Trumpocracy, the Corruption of the American Republic. Thank you for joining me, David. Hey, thank you. As I read this book, I couldn't help but think back upon a phrase that may eventually become, I would think, the epitaph for either the American Republic or the Republican Party, depending on who goes first. And it harkens back to January 20th, 1981, when Ronald Reagan, in his inaugural address, said, in this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. That was the first and such a powerfully concise rejection of government that it, I think, in a sense, captured the Republican Party and the conservatives to the point where it's we now have what you call Trumpocracy. Um, and, and this is not a happy time for us, is it? You know, to give, to give Ronald Reagan his due, let's just remember exactly what he said and exactly when he said it. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's very different time. It, what he said at the time was was appropriate then. Maybe not so much what's become. Exactly. In January of 1981, the United States was suffering from shortages of oil and natural gas caused by government-imposed price controls. Um, interest rates were nearing 20% caused by government-produced inflation. Um, the, the top rate of tax in the country was um, uh, was 70%. Um, so Ronald, um, Ronald Reagan was talking about a time when government really was the problem. I don't think he would have given that same speech on the morning after December 7th, 1941. Uh, I don't think he would have given that speech <laughs> during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, at, th- at those times, other things were the crisis. And one of, the, uh, one of the ways that the conservative world has gone into trouble is by insisting that it is forever, 1981. And that ironically means denying its own success at solving the problems that Ronald Reagan addressed in that inaugural address. Wow, that's that's an amazing analysis, and that's so right on. And, you know, the other thing I, I kept thinking, too, was that uh, this is really the American boiling a frog moment when the changes that are happening to us are happening in, at a in a manner that seems almost unaware of what's happening. And I'm wondering if how that kind of uh, vision informed your book. Um, yes, we certainly, well, look at what has happened, for example, with mm-hmm. the Russian story. But what we already know now, as a 
adds up to the biggest crisis, the biggest scandal since at least Iran-Contra, maybe Watergate. There's, there's more yet that we still don't know. But because people are, have become used to what we do know, that we keep being asked, you'll see this on cable news, well, what, you know, what revelations are ahead? Actually, the most important revelations in the Russian matter are already behind us. <laughs> you know, uh, I, I think, too, that one of the things that struck me about this as a book was that you're, you do such an excellent job of excavating the story from the journalism and working in that space where journalism is itself becoming history. And that involves bringing in facts that might not have been uh, accounted for or uh, discussed by other uh, writers and also um, leaving stuff out that is less important. So talk about that kind of process of trying to, you know, write history in the midst of journalism. Well, that, that is a hugely important problem, a, a big challenge, um, because uh, you, it's very easy to get caught up in things that seem ex- exciting at the moment um, mm-hmm. and, and to lose context. Um, it's very easy to get sort of caught, um, to be overwhelmed uh, by the flow of events. And uh, it's one of the risks I took, and I'm sure I have often stumbled into in this book, of you know trying to right for the long term while living in the immediate term. Uh, this book has so many, uh, has such a great hold on what what has happened. So let's start with what you call the pre-existing conditions. Um, what were the things and the people that were there before uh, Trump came into power that enabled his rise to to power, what what for you were the most important aspects of the American political scene at that time? Well, let's let's go through a number. The first was the devastating impact of the Great Recession of two thousand and nine and afterwards, and the weak recovery from the Great Recession. Before that was a long period of slow growth for most people and um, concentration of the benefits of economic growth in comparatively few hands. That's been going on since the recession of two thousand and two thousand and one. We've had the way that the game of politics has been played more and more savagely since the end of the Cold War. Cold War. Um, and I document a lot of the, the turns of that wheel. Um, we have the trauma of Iraq um, that Republicans had never processed. It just became something you, you couldn't discuss. And because you couldn't discuss, you couldn't learn lessons from it, good or bad. No one could ever say where the foreign policy of George W. Bush had been right because we could never – address the questions of where that that foreign policy had not succeeded. And lurking behind all of this were some huge longer term shifts, you know, the the sense that Americans as China was catching up to the United States as the world's largest economy, um, America's insecurity, both about their place in the world and their prosperity, and the destabilizing effects of the mass immigration we've been running since 1990. And the United States is taking about 2 million legal and illegal immigrants a year, changing the country in a way that it hadn't been changed um, since before the First World War. You know, one of the most important things that has happened uh, that has enabled 
Trumpocracy is uh, the pervasiveness of conspiracy theory and its reach up into the mainstream news to the point where the difference between conspiracy theory and mainstream news is often hard to distinguish. Could you talk about how that happened and what made that possible? Um, Americans have always been susceptible to conspiracy theories. Uh, if you study the origins of the American Revolution, um, one, a lot of the people who were fighting in George Washington's army thought that what they were fighting against was a plot by George III to make America Catholic. Um, that was the fourth of the Intolerable Acts. The Quebec Act had given Catholic civil rights in what is now the province of Quebec. And a lot of Americans thought that the, you know, the, the way that many Americans dread that Sharia law is coming to the United States in 1776, <laughs> a lot of Americans thought that Catholicism was coming to Massachusetts. Um, the, what is different now is... Uh, conspiracy theories we have always had. What is new is our, our devices like Fox News to mainstream conspiracy theories right into the American elite and right into the competitive American political process. This is a, a book that's so interesting because at the center of it is a figure, a figure of, of Donald Trump. But you say in your book that Trumpocracy you call it Trumpocracy because it's a study of rulership, not a study of personality. Why did you make that distinction? Oh, because, look, we, Trump is, as you say, a, a mesmerizing personality. And Michael Wolff has drawn our attention to a lot of his peculiarities. But the whole point of the American system of government is to keep people like this away from power, and especially and above all the power of the presidency. All of those systems failed. And for me, the question is not... Why is Donald Trump the person he is? There are disordered personalities all the time. The question for me, um, how was it that this disordered personality got control of the nuclear codes? And that's not a story about Trump. That's a story about everybody around Trump. Uh, this begins with the enablers. And you have a, a fascinating list of the enablers in, in your book. Uh, you, you say that he was hoisted into office by conservative entertainment complex, fellow candidates, the Republican Party apparatus that submitted to him, donor elite who funded him, congressional party that protected him. Uh, this is a lot of people. And what's interesting is they, to a certain extent, do you feel they were working in concert or do you feel that this was just a, a you know, perfect storm? Well, in some ways they were working not enough in concert. Well, in a different time, uh, what would happen, especially as Donald Trump got close to the Republican nomination, um, in the final rounds of the competition, Trump faced um, Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio, and John Kasich. The three, those were the three last credible candidates standing. What would have happened in a different period in American history is the leaders of the Republican Party, because they would, they would have existed, would have called those three candidates into a room and said, right, one of you is going to be the nominee. One of you is going to be the nominee for vice president. One of you is going to be um, choice for secretary of state. We don't care which it is, but the three of you are going to not leave this room until you're one ticket that can unite all of the non-Trump forces in the party, which were a majority, against the Trump forces in the party. That never happened. But all of those players kept hoping that, Don that, that they were all hoping to make a final round between Donald Trump and themselves because they believed that in that case, the party would have to rally around. So Ted Cruz enabled Donald Trump all the way through trying to force a Cruz-Trump choice. Rubio, the same thing. Um, 
John Kasich a little less so, but the same thing. Uh, and they, ne so they never coordinated. Meanwhile, in other cases, uh, right, you have in, in Congress, you have a, a powerful Republican Party that, it, whose members do not like Donald Trump. You would think that members of Congress would get together and, and say, we are going to um, put some constraints on this president. Instead, he's constrained them. This is, I think, one of the most fascinating turns in this story. Uh, the behavior of the Republican-led uh, Congress is is really interesting. They seem to have abandoned ship with regards to uh, conservative principles. Uh, when you look at the $1.5 billion trillion dollar tax cut, uh, this is not uh, the financial conservative, financially conservative Republican Party of my uh, feckless youth. Talk about uh, the, you know, the top people, or, uh, Ryan, McConnell. These guys seem to be almost as uh, deeply enmeshed in whatever Trump is enmeshed in as Trump is himself. Right. That's exactly right. Now, they are now in a situation where they thought they could use Trump and they ended up being used by him. Paul Ryan is a um, highly ideological figure. He's a true believer. So he, what he's interested in is um, he's got a vision of the, the role of government. He, it's not a very popular vision. He was never going to be able to achieve that vision on his own. Trump offered him um, the hope that something he couldn't do on his own, he could, he could maybe do with the help of this person he obviously doesn't care very much for. But still, um, you know, politics you can't be fussy mcconnell is not a believer not an ideologue uh, mcconnell loves power and trump offered him power and each as you go through the ranks of the republican party everybody has their own story of why they have made the choices they have but they have all made choices that tend to empower donald trump rather than constrain him in addition to the people who helped him get there you there are the people you call the appeasers uh, who are these people and what do you mean by that phrase well, um, the appeasers are many of the people in the larger uh, conservative intellectual world. I mean, this is uh, you and I are talking during CPAC week. Oh, um, C yes. CPAC has been a freak show for a long time, but but it, it stands <laughs> for the principle that, that conservatism is not just um, a system of promotion for, you know, um, mini skirted bottle blondes. But <laughs> but uh, conservatism is actually a system of ideas. And that, again, that has not been true for a while. But what you have seen is that the organized conservative movement has had no capacity to resist Donald Trump. And in fact, it believes it connect, he connects them with something bigger and more powerful. Now, uh, so what has happened is, is that uh, the Trump, Trumpism, as it were, has consumed uh, conservatism, which is exactly the opposite of what uh, I think most of the political establishment thought what happened. I think there there was a, a pretty good feeling at the beginning that Trump would, if he became president, would calm down and step up to the yes. to the task at hand. But that didn't happen. Can you talk about how we saw that happen and, and how those plans just went completely down the big swirly? Well, Americans have a hard time accepting that anything really bad can happen <laughs> Um, and Ronald Reagan, you started by quoting him, used to say, people say this is impossible, but we can do it because after all, we're Americans. And it turns out Americans do belong to that same human race that everybody else belongs to. And um, that 
they also are vulnerable to having their political system taken over by populist authoritarians in the way that uh, we have seen happen um, in Turkey and South Africa and the Philippines, uh, and that is on in the process of happening in, in Hungary and Poland, and could well happen at any minute in France. The Republican Party, and especially with, with Donald Trump leading it, has become relentlessly negative. And this is a really unusual stance for any kind of American political party. The, uh, in my lifetime, uh, politics has always tried to speak to and address the positive and the good things uh, in, in America and emphasize those so that we feel good about ourselves. This is the exact opposite tack, and that's really, I think, hard to process. Um, Donald Trump has the bully's instinct for where weaknesses are. Uh, he is able to see uh, the weaknesses in his opponents, Jeb Bush low energy. That's an unforgettable description. And once he says it, you can't stop thinking about it. Um, and he saw also the weaknesses in the American political system. Um, essentially, he saw that Americans of 2016 were more divided by their animosities against each other than they were committed to what they had in common as Americans. What, when you were saying that Donald Trump was really, one of the things Trump is good at is like coming up with a really memorable point, a memorable name, a memorable phrase, the kind of stuff that just sticks in your brain. And it it struck me that what Trump has done is has bring the showbiz the, the mentality of the showbiz host entertainer to politics and, and applied it without even thinking about uh, politics at all. I mean, it's like he's never, it is true, he's never done that before. So now he's just taking his own uh, particular message. And I think that that has been proved to be a, kind of an Achilles heel of his opponents and those who, have, who are attempting to work with him. Right. Well, his instinct is always he has a great power to belittle and demean. And I think many people assumed, well, if Americans saw that close up, they wouldn't like it. And obviously, most of us do not like it, and especially most women do not like it. Uh, but the Romans built the Colosseum in about the year 70, and it stayed in business for about the next 400 plus years uh, um, with bums in seats twice a week watching men hack each other to death. There is a human appetite for cruelty. Donald Trump understood that and has exploited that. That's why you can't stop watching because you say, what terrible thing will he do next? Yeah, well, that's certainly true, but it's more about, well, I hope they don't start a nuclear war sense. Uh, one of the things we saw was um, the formation of the conservatives, uh, uh, I believe you are probably among them, never Trump. So that uh, movement, it's still with us, but it, what never gained the power it needed to un, unstop him. Talk about the creation of a movement that's against its own leader of, of its own party. That's a really, this is just bizarre. Well, look, the American party system it's going to be remade because a lot of people, you know, a lot of people have always saw themselves as Republican voters, mm -hmm. uh, find Donald Trump uncomfortable. And that's especially true for a lot of, for many, many women. And, you know, there's a, when reporters write about Trump world, they tend to focus on this, the famous Trump base and they'll go to 
um, depressed areas of the country. And they'll find that, you know, in some uh, de sad deindustrializing town or some hard-pressed coal mining area, the people there still stand by Trump. And that's true. But if Trump had only had those people, he would not be president. He's president because in a lot of places like um, Bucks County, Pennsylvania, uh, more affluent, more educated people, including women, who didn't really like him very much, decided he was the lesser evil. Uh, to Hillary Clinton. And his ability to hold on to the presidency rests either on his ability to continue to persuade those people that he's the lesser evil, or here's one of the things I really worry about a lot in the book, his party's willingness to change the rules of democracy so that it can continue to exercise a lot of power without a lot of votes. Pennsylvania is a perfect example of that. Because Republicans have something like um, a 13 to 5 advantage of, of Pennsylvania's congressional delegation even though they only get about half the votes in the state. Uh, this is a really uh, worrying trend because we ha have a man in office who seems to be willing to ignore all the norms of uh, presidential behavior. Uh, you were talking about um, changing the rules. Here's a man who has uh, decided that he wants to use the Justice Department to attack his political opponents. This is unheard of and, and i think a really good example of this kind of rule changing and it's but it's proving to be alarmingly easy to uh, change rules that are essentially unwritten and that's problematic here's a good example of that so um the rules say that the president appoints the director of the fbi who's then confirmed by, by the senate and is supposed to serve a 10-year term but can be dismissed at any time by the president for any reason that's that's what the rules say the reality has been that the head of the FBI cannot be dismissed by the president except for very good cause. And the way we know this to be true, so we look at the last time a director of the FBI was terminated, that was in the Clinton administration. Uh, there's a director of the FBI who was accused, maybe even unfairly, of not having used his expense account properly. Um, this became a huge investigation. There was notice to the director of FBI, uh, an opportunity to comment, he made his case. President Clinton, as he then was, uh, took the matter to the relevant members, senior members of Congress. Uh, there, there wasn't a, a formal vote because it's a presidential decision, but he got buy-in. The members of Congress looked at the, the facts and said, this doesn't look good. Uh, yeah, we think um, the director should go. And after weeks of discussion and debate and consultation and hearing from the director of the FBI in his own defense, he was fired, meaning that the president does not control this job and cannot hire and fire anybody to do, be head of the FBI for any reason. And certainly that the president cannot direct the FBI to investigate this person or refrain from investigating that person. But Donald Trump has staked out a very different approach, and to date he's been backed by his own party. If Trump succeeds, it will be the law of the land that the president can fire the head of the FBI for any reason, including the, that he told the FBI to stop a criminal investigation and the head of the FBI did not adhere, did not comply. And this is a position that has been defended not just by um, – you know, sycophantic people around Trump, but by some leading lights in the conservative world and on the Wall Street Journal editorial page. You write, of all the party institutions that yielded to Trump, far and away the most important was Fox News. And, and this is certainly true. Talk about that change, how even that Fox News already somewhere out in the weeds went further out just to accommodate this president. Well, Fox began as an institution, you know, enjoying Trump because he certainly was good ratings. And we're talking here about early 2015. 
but with the news division um, doing some pretty, pretty critical commentary. Uh, people like um, Hannity were totally in this corner, of course, O'Reilly too, although to a somewhat lesser degree. Um, but, but the news division, the um, reputable people at Fox, the Brett Bears, the Megyn Kellys, um, the Chris Wallaces, they stood up to him. And when, Fox, when Trump took part in a Fox-sponsored debate uh, in 2015, they asked him some very, very tough questions. Trump went berserk. All three of them, by the way, asked him tough questions. But Trump, of course, singled upon the, uh, focused upon the questions asked him by a women, the woman, Megyn Kelly. He found that especially intolerable. Uh, and he then boycotted the next Fox debate, and Fox yielded to him. And, you know, within months, Megyn Kelly was gone, and Fox had remade its primetime lineup to be, like, you know, the North Korean Politburo, one one person more grovelly than the next. Um, you know, it's it's all white nationalist TV all the time now in prime time. To a certain extent, what you have here in your book is what might be called uh, the nonfiction version of the Manchurian candidate. Well, I, look, we need to be really careful about mm -hmm. about about what we allege mm -hmm. about Donald Trump's Russia connections. Um, what is fact is is so seriously bad that uh, you don't want to overstep what is known toward what is still unproven. I mean, we don't know that Donald Trump himself uh, takes direction from anybody in Russia. But we do know that the contacts between this campaign and Russia were uh, inappropriate, um, disloyal, disturbing, and possibly illegal. Once uh, Trump achieved office, uh, in the run-up, he, he promised to divest himself of all his business and, and to you know, be straight up in that regard like any other president. We should have known that this was a Lucy with the football moment because he'd already not ever shown us his taxes um chapter four you call plunder and i think that <laughs> this is what we're really seeing here this is uh, uh you know the word that comes to mind is carpetbagger um look, donald trump did not comply with any of those promises he has not divested himself from the companies he has operational control of the companies through his obedient children he is fully aware of how the companies earn their living. There is no blind trust. They continue to own operating assets. He receives almost all of the revenue from those companies. He can resume even nominal control at any time. And uh, he's operating a business, which is something that no president has done from the White House since Lyndon Johnson. And in Lyndon Johnson's case, it was a huge scandal. Uh, and not just any business, but a business where a large part of the income and maybe the majority of the income uh, we don't know, but it's sort of when you sort of do a, a quick tally, it does look like the majority of the income comes from foreign partners in places like India, Turkey, the Philippines, United Arab Emirates, who are paying millions of dollars in licensing fees to the Trump organization, which Donald Trump then takes as personal income. He is beholden to not only to the Russians in ways we don't see, but to the governments of Turkey and the Philippines in ways that we just stopped commenting about. You know, he gets, um, one of his single largest sources of income is he gets $2 million in rent a year from the, the government of China, the Chinese state, for premises it's rented in Trump Tower. Your book is called The Corruption in the American Republic, subtitled, and you write, a rule of law state can withstand a certain amount of official corruption. What it cannot understand is a culture of impunity and we seem to be in a, a, a culture uh, almost of impunity where uh, almost a, how many aides have been uh, 
picked off because of uh, travel uh, extravagance. I mean, this, this is a, a state where there's so much rot, it's hard to tell where the rot actually is. It rots from the top. That's where the rot always happens. Um, and there is no one in this administration who is saying, um, you know, we have to, uh, there's no one there to enforce the ethical standards because what the president does is uh, sets the tone. And that's how administrations always are. A president cannot condemn what he himself does. The other aspect, too, of this that's just uh, kind of amazing, a rule, the one of those unwritten rules that has been broken is uh, the president's just uh, demand to include his family as throughout the top parts of the government. And this is, these are members of his family, uh, Jared Kushner in particular, who can't even uh, sustain a, a background check. We've had, it, it really, it's really shocking. We have been cleaning up the federal government now for a century, certainly half a century. Um, you know, Ulysses Grant did a lot of um, patronage hiring. Franklin Roosevelt made his son a member of the White House staff, his son, and his son, Franklin Jr., was not a very ethical person. Uh, but since World War II, the um, standards have risen higher and higher and higher. Uh, um, when President Eisenhower, um, his son was had a White House staff job. He had a very junior job with the National Security Council. He was he was seconded by the Army um, because as a reward, he'd done a, he'd been a very gallant officer in Korea, um, and. Uh, after and they, they then you get a night after you've done really hard, the army rotates you and you've done hard duty for three years they find you something nice and they got him a job on the national security council his father refused to talk to him while he was on the national security really <laughs> you're, you're, as far as I'm concerned yeah you're just another incredibly junior uh, um, you know uh, there's a famous story about Eisenhower and and, and his son um, that uh, the, the son said to him you know uh, what do I do if I meet an officer who ranks above me, but below you. And, <laughs> and uh, do I salute? What do I do? And Eisenhower said to his son, there is not an officer in this army who does not rank above you and below me. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, one of the things that we, we've seen about Trump is um, his ability to, or his willingness to tell lies, and it, it's, I, I think, astonishing and one of the more terrifying aspects about this presidency because he has completely undone 200 plus years of presidents who, mo for the most part, did not lie every time they spoke. And th this man, you're on a good bet. If you say if his lips are moving, he's not telling the truth. Yeah, Trump lies both strategically and non-strategically. Um, That's an uh, interesting observation. I never thought about that. Yes, he does, doesn't he? So talk about the different kinds of lies he tells. Well, look, people people in politics do often lie. They try to avoid it. Mm -hmm. um, politicians mostly the reason when we use the word talking like a politician <laughs> is being mean. Right, trying to avoid saying something, like talking around the issue in order to avoid telling a lie. Trump is never mealy mouthed. He just comes straight out and 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 fibs. Um, and people are puzzled by this, but you have to think: okay, the non-strategic lying that seems to be about his boastfulness and his ego. But the strategic lying often has 
good reasons. One of the phrases you hear a lot in Washington is, you know, the cover-up is always worse than the crime. That depend, that's not always true. It depends on what the crime is. Uh, you know, if, if your crime is that you, you know, murdered your landlady and, and dissolved your body in acid, um, actually, you know, covering up may be your best, uh, your best option because the cover-up there, you know, bad as the cover-up is, the crime is so heinous that um, there is no forgiveness if you discover the crime. Uh, and that may be true in the Russia case. The crime may be so serious that the cover-up is his only choice. He's also a man who demands loyalty, and we've. This was uh, the crux of of the the Comey affair, and yet he's a man who offers absolutely no loyalty. You talk about this in a chapter about the betrayals and, and the the first uh, unfortunate target was uh, Sean Spicer, and the what happened to him with. Pope Francis, I think, was just really astonishingly ugly. Yeah. Well, well uh, Sean Spicer, who is a devout Catholic, not that you know from his behavior, but um, it, 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 after hours, he cares a lot about God and conscience. Um, Sean Spicer was invited on a trip to the Vatican and wanted to meet the Pope, and Trump was mad at him for a bunch of other reasons and so pointedly omitted him in a way that was just sort of cruel. But when you talk about loyalty, um, Trump, all presidents demand loyalty and all presidents are entitled to loyalty. What loyalty means is you're in a meeting and you don't tell people outside the meeting what happened. Or um, there's a mistake that the staffer volunteers to take the blame to protect the president. Or the um, you know staffer goes on trying to protect the president the best he can. Trump doesn't ask for loyalty in the way that um, Obama asked for and got loyalty. Or George W. Bush asked for and got loyalty. He wants complicity. Um, Everyone understands, like, if, um, uh, I mean, if the president were to say to, if President Bush or President Obama were to say, I want you to do something for me, um, I want you to kick that puppy, people wouldn't do that. <laughs> uh, the idea is always the loyalty is within the bounds of what is proper for the president to ask. What President Trump asked Comey to do was not for loyalty. He asked him to do something that was improper. And that is not loyalty. That is complicity. That's a really interesting observation. I hadn't thought about it in that way before, but that's even scarier. One of uh, Donald uh, Trump's big successes, you write, is that um, is convincing his supporters to regard honest media as fake news. And this attack on the news is relentless. It's nonstop, and it's accompanied by... Uh, 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 an undertow of, you know, actual, like, made-up fake news conspiracy theories and just whatever comes out of his, passes through his mind at any given moment. Uh, talk about the import of honest media and what is happening here. It, I mean, this is high on the list of signs you live in a dictatorship. The phrase fake news originated to describe a very real thing, and that was uh, the deliberate de creation by foreign actors, especially the Russians, of disinformation, thing, uh, things that were engineered to look like actual media stories that might have run in a local news source that was credible, um, and to insert these things into the discussion in target countries. Um, and they, they, this really began with their attacks on Ukraine, um, going back to uh, the Maidan movement in 2013, 
It's a long-standing tool of Russian and actually before that of Soviet foreign policy. Um, that's what, how we use the phrase. And Trump was the huge beneficiary of fake news. Single most uh, read piece of fake news in the 2016 cycle was a story that was created by, by Russians um, claiming that Pope Francis had endorsed Donald Trump. It was an important fake news story to circulate because, of course, President Trump had gotten into a Twitter war insulting the Pope, which is one of the things you're not supposed to do in American politics. Um, Trump then, and this is his kind of devilish genius, Trump seized on this thing, which described a bad thing that he and his people around him had done and trafficked in, to describe honest reporting that was inconvenient to him. And so, in taking, he took, not only when he took the word fake news and applied it to honest reporting, he also deprived people of the ability to talk about what he had been doing, the deliberate creation of these false news stories with a view. And then, and then after a while, it, of course, you make everything a blur. That, so that these stories that are being circulated by pro-gun people about how these um, incredibly brave and eloquent young students were speaking out about what they saw in their school, that these are mere actors, that that, that, that is truly fake news. We can't use that term anymore because in the minds of millions of Americans, fake news means what happens when the Washington Post does a real investigation and how Donald Trump has been um, engaged in this or that form of financial corruption. The creation of of all this this world of fake news it's an attempt to essentially what donald trump's trying to do is to by force grab reality with his tiny little hands and wrench it into something that uh he makes you know that makes him happier i mean he is an unhappy child trying to turn the world into something that he likes. It's almost like a, something a, a stage hypnotist would do, and that takes us back to his stage uh, work as a, you know, in TV. Um, yeah, he... The, the old-style authoritarians, um, communists and Nazis, wanted their followers to believe lies. But Trump is not so ideological. He doesn't care whether you believe him, just so long as you disbelieve everybody else. Uh, he is better served by a country of cynics than by a country of suckers. Wow. <laughs> That's an interesting and, again, very frightening uh, perception. As you were writing all this and bringing all this together, I mean, you, you are swimming it every single day. But as you are putting this book together, and picking and choosing the parts that you put in to, to create, you know, your story and your history and your narrative. Did you, like, start to think that this is really, essentially, this is a horror story. It's, uh, I'm reminded of The Dead Zone, a Stephen King novel. It, it's, a, it's a story of danger, but it's also a story of possibility and of hope. Um, mm -hmm. The future, well, someone's asked me to predict the future, but... The future, that to predict the future, that takes for granted that the future already exists. The future is what we make. Mm. So what is both frightening and exciting about the Trump era is we have a chance to decide the kind of future we're going to have. Um, after Donald Trump, this country is either going to be a lot better or a lot, of, a lot worse. Um, he's either going to succeed in what he's trying to do and what he's trying to do to us, or in resisting him, uh, citizens will have to rise to a higher political standard. And if we, if we can get that higher political standards, we may come out of this, if we choose right, as a better country than we were when we went into it. 
I think that that's one of the important aspects of your book is that you you don't just wallow in the in the awfulness, but you're constantly, even by virtue of you know the your the keenness of your observations, um, you you're constantly like directing us towards there's another choice we can make, and I'm wondering as events. Proof down. Do you th- do you think that we're getting closer or farther from making the right choice? I think that things are really going to intensify as the um, Mueller um, report, as the Mueller investigation proceeds. Um, the indictments are coming. Uh, there may be a report coming, and we will see people trying to defend uh, an administration from some really heinous indictments. How that goes, whether the people who de- defend and apologize for what this administration has done are able to cover, carry enough of the country with them or not, you know, everything rides on that. That's pretty scary because right now, one of the things I think that a lot of people are find themselves surprised by are the fact that you know there are a lot of the comparisons between now and Watergate, where the Republicans during Watergate said, "Well, we've got to do something about this man. This is bad." These this current set of Republicans seems less inclined to do so and more inclined to actually not not only just let him do what he wants to, but to help him accomplish that. And that, I think, is the part that is frightening to a large number of people. Um, you're, yeah, no, that, that, that's, that's really true. It is, um, and lingering against all of this, of course, is the possibilities of war and peace. Um, President Trump careening toward crisis in the Korean Peninsula. Um, the President of the United States has the power contained in a box that follows him everywhere to end organized human life on this planet. The idea that that power is in Donald Trump's hands, I, I think, makes it hard to sleep at night. Even one nuke uh, launched anywhere in this world is going to be, it might, the chances of becoming a chain reaction are, you know, quite good and that's going to that will end all life on this earth that's a that's a really you know we are in times of what is literally an existential crisis the existence of not just this nation but the humanity itself is on the line and it's kind of hard to wrap your brain around that and i think that's something that uh trump and the people who support him use to their advantage you know, the president right now, he is at the center of a system of power that either is going to keep its present form or that is going to, if it keeps it, rather should say, if it keeps its present form, the American system of, of government as we know it will not. I mean, you can have Trumpocracy or the rule of law, but you cannot have both. Events are moving at an amazing pace so that we, you know, have seen a whole raft of new indictments. We see a lot of movement towards um, the Russian end of the equation, it seems, with regards to Mueller. And and Mueller is a fascinating figure, I think, in in the Trump presidency, may prove to be the most interesting figure beyond Trump himself. Uh, He has managed to keep a, an amazingly leak-free investigation in contrast with the Trump White House where every insane thing that happens is immediately tweeted. And I think that might be a, a problem with uh, that starts at the top, as it were. 
uh, look, Mueller is kind of the anti-Trump. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a fantastic story about him in the uh, February 23rd Washington Post, where uh, Mueller comes from a, a wealthy background, like Trump's, comes from uh, the same kind of northeastern um, wasp ascendancy as Trump does. But at every point where um, Trump lived for self, Mueller lived for country. Um, Mueller served in Vietnam when Trump dodged the draft. Mueller um, um, committed himself, is a man of faith when Trump is the most um, unchristian, unreligious president the United States has ever had. Um, Trump, sorry, Mueller devoted himself to public service and has lived on his salary. Um, Trump, of course, is lived by self and, is, and has sought every kind of sordid and squalid and outright dishonest financial advantage. Uh, it is hard to imagine two people more unlike each other, down to the extraordinary discipline of, they're, they're approximately the same age. I mean, look at them. And Mueller is a man who really, you know, never, never takes an unnecessary morsel of food, um, you know, lives for work, uh, remains committed to his family, um, nursed a disabled child, uh, Trump is. Trump also has a disabled child of whom he's contemptuous to reporters. You write about Ronald Kessler saying there's no violation of law if, in fact, the campaign colluded with Russia, whatever that means. And Michael Reagan also said this: the collusion is not breaking the law. This is a, a way of by. The, we are being attacked with our own language change, by changing the meanings of words under our feet. You just pull the rug out from underneath people's feet and all of a sudden collusion is no longer a crime. This and is a, it's scary. And uh, you have a lot of the Republican Party willing to make excuses for their candidate working with a hostile foreign power. Um, you know, compare, there's a... Um, uh, popular conservative radio show where um, the host asks a skill testing question of everyone who comes on his air, was Alger Hiss guilty? And some of your, your listeners are younger, they may not know. This was a huge scandal in the America of 1948 to 52. Alger Hiss, um, uh, Alger Hiss was um, an official of the United States government, had an important role in the Department of Agriculture, and he had been a Soviet spy. And once upon a time, having a, an employee of the Department of Agriculture be um, a Soviet spy was enough to convulse the country. Now we have a president who's contaminated by Russian influence and the talkers of the party are defending I've been speaking with David Frum. His new book is Trumpocracy. Thank you for joining me, David. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.